Hello everyone and welcome to Motos and Friends, a weekly podcast brought to you by the editorial team at Ultimate Motorcycling. My name is Arthur Coldwells. Royal Enfield have been doing rather well in the last few years. Their retro-styled bikes are cool-looking, they work well, and, as it happens, they are priced right. Associate Editor Gary Ilmanen went to the launch of the new Royal Enfield Scram 411. It's a modestly powered single-cylinder machine with urban cool styling and a slight ADV leaning. So is the Scram 411 a decent open road bike? Or is it only really capable of just being a city bike? For our second segment, I chat with movie writer, producer and director Mark Neal. Of all the motorcycle documentary style movies made, Mark's 2003 racing epic, Faster, has stood the test of time and is now arguably almost as iconic as on any Sunday. Faster was quickly followed by a sequel, Faster and Faster in 2004, and The Doctor, The Tornado and The Kentucky Kid in 2006. For 2011, Mark premiered Charge, Zero Emissions Maximum Speed, as well as Fastest. Finally, in 2015, Mark came out with Hitting the Apex. That one was narrated by Brad Pitt. Mark's exceptional storytelling shows the human side of racing, and several of the stories behind the ecstasy of victory and the agony of defeat. In Catching Up with Mark, we hear his story, how faster and its sequels came to be, and of course what Mark is up to now. Whether you've watched any of these movies or not, I urge you to do so either for the first time or once again. Even if you're not much into motorcycle racing, they're well worth your time. You can find the whole set on Amazon. So sit back and hopefully you enjoy this episode. I think it's actually a 410cc uh, engine, uh, single overhead cam, four stroke. Um, They refer to it uh, in conversation as their LS engine, uh, meaning uh, long stroke, because it's a, a 78 millimeter bore and an 86 millimeter stroke. So uh, it it is a long stroke single, uh, presumably uh, to get as much torque as they could with that uh, relatively small displacement. Have they have they used that engine in anything else that that we know of, or is is this a completely new engine for Royal Enfield? Uh, this is the same engine that they use, uh, and in the same state of tune, as I understand it, as has been used in the Himalayan uh, since that model was rolled out a few years ago. So it's a, it, it is definitely a tried and true, you know, tested engine. What were your thoughts on it? You well, you know, I think um, in other other commentary about the the scram, which I, I understand is a shortening of the scrambler word, uh, and that's the market <laughs> right. this bike is targeted for, uh, is as a street scrambler uh, of the kind that uh, we grew up with back in the 70s uh, when Honda right. had their C- CL350 and other manufacturers had uh, high pipe uh, street bikes that were adapted to look you know, more like off-road capable bikes. And uh, so that's that's the primary market for this bike, as I understand it. Uh, and it's 
the engine is actually very workable. Uh, I grew up, you know, in my early days riding motorcycles. Um, 350, 450 cc engines were considered actually mid of the range, not not lower or lightweight bikes as they are now. Uh, and to this to this day, I have a 1976 Honda CJ360. Uh, twin in my garage, which is uh, the same bike as I bought brand new back in 1976, and so I'm I'm kind of used to riding bikes with that uh, in that displacement category and weight category. Um, I still ride that 360 pretty frequently, and uh, I think that one was rated had a crankshaft horsepower rating of about 32 horsepower. Um, the maximum rating for the uh, Scram 411 is uh, stated as 24 horsepower at the crankshaft, and maximum torque is about 24 foot-pounds at 4,250 RPMs, I think is uh, what they quoted it at. So it's a very uh, easy bike to ride, easy to handle, and the single-cylinder engine, uh, one of the primary advantages that it brings is the such light weight to the bike. Um, but, uh, you know, the other, the other thing about it is that we had to deal with in the seventies and eighties was almost every single cylinder engine that we rode back then vibrated something awful. Uh, they were terrible. <laughs> and, I remember. Yeah. Some of them vibrated so badly that, you know, when you got up to passing speed, uh, your mirrors would go out of adjustment, but, that's not the case with this engine because uh, it's got a uh, counterbalancer, and that really is effective uh, throughout you know your usable power range. Uh, the only time you notice a little more vibration actually showing up uh, through the handlebars and the foot pegs that you would attribute to the engine would be if you're really pushing it, um, you know, like passing speed and uh, right at the top of the power range, which um, you know, you don't use all that often anyway. So despite the very modest power output, what were your feelings on the sort of the usability of, of the bike? I mean, clearly it would work around town, but do you feel that it would work, you know, well on the open road? Well, you know, again, going back to the target market for this bike, if, you know, street scrambler with some off-road capability, um, the engine is really workable in terms of the fact that it'll lug from low RPMs. Now, the bike doesn't have an uh, tachometer on it, uh, so you're kind of guessing where you are in terms of the, the revs that the engine is turning. But in, in all-around riding, it pulls away from stop signs very readily. Um, you know, you can, you can get sloppy if you want to with the, with the transmission in terms of not always getting all the way down to first gear to pull away from a stop sign. It's, it's got enough torque uh, if you don't have a heavy load on, if you don't, you know, just riding it as, as uh, was done for this launch event with uh, no saddlebags and no extra weight on it and, and riding one up. Uh, it, it actually seems to pull away very easily, uh, even in second gear. Uh, around town, uh, it's really easy to handle. Again, that that's part part and parcel of the lightweight, um, but, you know, my experience with single-cylinder engines going back some years, especially like if you had a two-stroke that's a high output, you had a narrow 
relatively narrow power band that you could work with. Um, the power band on the 411 seems to be broad enough where uh, it's happy puttering along downtown. And when you get out on the highway, uh, you get the RPMs up there where you're using that 24 horsepower. Um, I believe that comes on at about 6,500 RPM is where that was rated at. Um, and between 50 and 65 miles an hour, uh, it really does well. Um, when you start pushing past 70 as out on rural interstates, if you're uh, keeping up with traffic at interstate speed, um, it's pushing it a little bit. But, um, you know, if you're not trying to go from Wisconsin to California on it at 70 miles an hour, it, it's going to be perfectly happy. So what was the uh, the chassis like? Yes, uh, interesting approach on it. The, the chassis is, is a product, uh, the design of the chassis, and I'm, I'm not sure exactly if the manufacturing of all the chassis components are from Harris uh, Engineering uh, in, in Great Britain. But the, the handling to me was only, only showed weakness in one respect, and that was uh, if you're pushing it, in a corner, uh, Harris Performance, rather, in England, did the design on this uh, split chassis. Uh, it's a, I forget how they describe it, but uh, the suspension showed a little bit of weakness in high-speed cornering, uh, at least on the one that I was riding, where there would be uh, the, the tighter the corner and the higher the speed, you'd have some noticeable oscillation going on where the bike would kind of squirm. Uh, among Harley riders, that, that they call that the Harley hula. If you're uh, riding <laughs> one of the bigger Harleys, at least the, the older bikes, um, into pushing them hard in corners. Um, and so that was the only time that I noticed any, any real weakness. Uh, they call it a half-duplex split cradle frame. Uh, that Harris designed for the bike, and it's a monoshock design. It's a linked monoshock. So I'm not sure if there was anything in the damping of the shock absorber. Uh, you know, linkage-assisted shock modulates quite a bit of the uh, road surface. Uh, we have we have what they call frost heaves here in Wisconsin. You probably don't have to deal with that much in California, um, but some of the roads we rode on. Um, have what we would look at as frost heaves almost year-round. It's like once the pavement is disrupted, uh, that phenomenon never goes away. And as far as rough pavement, uh, I thought the ride was really, really pretty exceptional. For as light as the bike is, uh, the seat, they have a new single-piece seat that's different from the one on the Himalayan. And, you know, the, the ride comfort is really good. Uh, so the suspension... On pavement works really well, and then on gravel roads, we we did wind up riding on some fairly gnarly, gnarly gravel out here in western <laughs> Wisconsin. And right. The bike, you know, that's really where its strength tends to be. I think is moderate speed on rural rural back roads. You're talking maybe some fairly rough blacktop. Um, maybe some washboard, gravel roads, and then 
some class two crushed gravel dumped on top of clay hard pan um, and we rode on some of those kinds of roads and I was impressed to that uh, the him the uh, scram handled really well we rode the uh, the continental um, in Australia earlier this year and we were very impressed and it's just a sort of a basic twin shock bike and we were very impressed by just how well it handled and and uh, and the sort of the job that Royal Enfield had done. I suspect the slight weaving or the oscillation that you're getting might be coming from swing arm flex because the swing arm does not look like a really heavy duty swing arm they probably tried to keep it fairly light and and perhaps the rear wheel is just twisting a little bit and causing that oscillation uh, you're 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 a, a rider of you know early 70s you know 1970s motorcycles and i grew up on those and i am very familiar with swing arm flex and how it makes a bike oscillate <laughs> yeah yeah it that that could be a factor um and you know, like I say, I don't know if the shock absorber itself um, becomes a part of the issue, but if ridden in the the target speed range that this bike is really strong in, which is basically within the posted high, highway speed limit, um, I don't think that would be an issue for the vast majority of people. And being able to corner um, on some of these back roads where I spend a lot of my time riding, um, admittedly, I'm, I'm not really crazy about riding on gravel roads. So if there's a way to get around them, I avoid them. Um, <laughs> right. especially when they have some fresh class two, uh, crushed gravel dumped on, on top of the roadbed. Uh, on one road that we, we were using, uh, was one of these, that exactly that kind of a, a road. We were going down a steep hill, and there's a 90-degree left-hander at the bottom. And with this gravel all over the place, you kind of had to be uh, extra careful on that particular stretch of road. And I found, you know, on a, on a big heavy street bike, for example, that kind of road can be pretty tricky uh, and intimidating. But on a lighter bike like the Scram, um, it, was, it was pretty easy to handle. So, and the brakes, the brakes are very progressive, so you don't get sudden grab, which on gravel again is a real, a real problem. Uh, they're an ABS, uh, full-on, uh, always-on ABS system, and they work really well under all conditions, really for me. Right, right. So it really sounds as though the bike actually handles extremely well. It's just just in extreme conditions that you can you can induce a, a kind of a bit of a weave but uh, but yeah. otherwise basically the handling is really very good yeah exactly um if you want to be a valentino rossi wannabe <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is not that bike right right what about the, the the rest of the bike what was things like uh how do you feel about the comfort you know, it, it, it's a very well-thought-out bike. Um, for me, uh, some bikes that have off-road credentials in terms of high ground clearance um, and are designed for bad road conditions or even going truly off-road on trails and, and things like that, they tend to have a saddle height that just is really not comfortable for me because I'm kind of short. And so... 
you know, handling at stop signs and and having to get off and on and, and manipulate the bike by hand uh, can be awkward on those tall bikes that have seat heights, you know, 33, 34 inches from the ground. Uh, this one at 31 inches is just about right for me. And the, the ergonomics of it in terms of the seating position, it's a nice, comfortable, upright seating position. The handlebars come back to you a little bit. Um, again, it's you know it's designed for low speeds where an upright seating position isn't going to have you fighting the wind too bad. Um, so it, in that regard, it you, it's a bike that you can ride all day. At least I could. Uh, some people uh, over six feet tall might find it a little less comfortable because it it is compact. It's it's not a really big physical physically large bike, so it's you know, for people well over six feet, they might find it a little, a little compact in terms of riding position. Uh, but they would like, I think, people over six feet would love being able to manhandle it and you know maybe do power turns in the dirt and that kind of stuff uh, because of its lightweight and uh, relatively compact structure. Actually, it looks very well proportioned. It's a very pretty bike. What was your impression of the the fit and the finish? It holds up really well in terms of the way everything is put together. I thought the welds, uh, chassis weld quality and, and the use of fasteners uh, and the way the bike is actually put together uh, overall is, is appealing. Uh, it looks like it'll last years and years. I like the way they've tucked the oil cooler uh, right up against the side of the frame. Uh, and I think overall that you, with the skid plate, to protect the uh, bottom of the chassis and, and the bottom of the engine. Uh, there's that uh, aluminum skid plate. I think it actually can be taken off-road on, uh, on some fairly serious trail riding. You know, a lot of the venture bikes that are out there now are so big and so overpowering, uh, I don't know how one person would ever be able to lift them up if they fell down, if they if they hit a rock bed and and wound up sliding off and laying the bike down. Uh, some of the big, major horsepower bikes in off-road uh, applications or adventure riding applications, I think, would be very difficult for a lone rider to get up under certain circumstances. This thing. Um, Probably not. Uh, it's light enough where one person can can manhandle it. Probably get it up off the ground pretty easily. I didn't didn't have to experiment with that. Um, but the fit and finish, the quality of the paint looks excellent to me. Uh, and I I come from a quality assurance background in manufacturing, so I have a critical eye for all sorts of things. Um, the bike that I had uh, had the optional uh, crash bars or engine guards. I guess is. Uh, the correct term for them, and hand guards, uh, which probably for people who are looking at taking a bike like the Scram on serious trail riding, uh, where where you're dealing with much tighter clearances or actually maneuvering through uh, among trees and then following a trail as opposed to a tote road or, or a blacktop road, uh, those would be great uh, additions. The instrumentation is really nice. It's easy to read, uh, although uh, the LED uh, digits on the on the accessories that are on the instrument pod, uh, like gear position indicator, are a little small, but 
kind of a minor point. Um, the only the only thing I, I wondered about were the the urban badges that they have near the bottom of the front edge of the of the tank. And I talked to Mark Wells, uh, their product design engineer, and uh, he explained that they were basically using the mounting points that uh, are used for the uh, tank bars on the Himalayan. And if there was one thing that probably the bike would still be very successful with, um, even if they were taken off, it was those urban bridges, um, because it, you know they cost money. Obviously, anything that they put into the product adds to the cost of it. And uh, if they wanted to knock the price down even a little more from the uh, $5,099 uh, current price tag on the basic uh, Scram, uh, maybe they could do without those or make them optional. Uh, for, for my money, if I was to buy one of the Scrams, probably the first thing that would be changed is those would come off. <laughs> you know, I would probably just take them off. But uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, that you know that would alter the appearance in terms of the way the logo is presented and all that. But um, um, that that was really the only thing that I could see on the bike that is something you probably don't really need. You know, their philosophy is everything you need and nothing you don't. Um, I don't know. Uh, it could be that the, the urban badges may be something that they could look at altering in the future. I don't know. I, I I really like the look of it. I think it looks. It's got a great sort of uh, modern yet retro look to it. What kind of wheel sizes does it have? Because that rather plays into the, you know, off-road handling and on-road handling. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's got a 19 inch on the front and a 17 inch on the back. Um, okay. The brand is the CEAT or CEAT Grip XL tires and kind of a universal tread. And my impression of the, the tires and the impact on, on the way they handle and, and work on the road and, and on the gravel uh, roads is that they're a lot better than the universal tires that I remember from way back when. Uh, you probably remember <laughs> them too. Um, yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> you know, everybody said, yeah, they're universal. They're universally bad. They don't work very well on the street, and they don't work very well off the road. So, uh, uh, I think happily these tires seem to actually work. They they seem to hold the road really well, even when you're pushing it in the corners, um, and on wet pavement as well. So uh, you've already mentioned the price. It's it's basically from what I from what I heard. It's essentially about five thousand U.S. dollars. Is is that about right? I guess the the MSRP is is quoted as five thousand ninety nine dollars, so basically fifty one hundred bucks. Yeah, and uh, I you know I one thing I think a lot of people don't even think about until after they sign sign the line to buy a bike is the the cost to insure it. And I, I would think uh, this bike would probably be you know pretty reasonable to insure. For sure, yeah. Are Royal Enfield offering any um, accessories on there? For instance, you know, like a windshield perhaps or, um, you know, any luggage or, or any of that kind of stuff? Yeah, um, as far as I know, um, like I say, my bike, uh, the one that I was riding, had the engine guards um, and the hand guards, and you can add a center stand. That's one thing, you know, I think a lot of people 
would be interested in because the center stand makes so many things so much easier, like uh, doing chain yeah. lubrication and things like that because it, it has a 520 chain for final drive. Um, but I understand that there's going to be uh, quite an extensive uh, list of accessories available. I think there's going to be quite a bit. I think there's going to probably, like you say, there's already universal windshields and stuff. Uh, but um, Royal Enfield will be branding some uh, more more accessories for that. Um, I guess there's the. Um, I think there is going to be a, a regular windshield, but it'll be different from what the Himalayan has. So right, um, okay. They've got some neat uh, neat attire and riding gear already available. Uh, so that that's already, I think, available in most Royal Enfield dealerships. Yeah, excellent, excellent. Um, we haven't talked about the brakes, but it looks like it comes with the uh, the Bray or however you pronounce it. The uh, essentially the sort of the Brembo subbrand, uh, but Brembo right. brakes um, with full ABS on it, from what I can see. Is that correct? Yeah, dual channel ABS. Um, and the disc, you know, the disc brakes on these, it really works well. Um, there's a 300 millimeter disc uh, twin piston caliper on the front. And unlike some bikes when they're fresh out of the box, and especially on a, on a wet day, uh, I've had some experience with disc brakes that tend to be grabby. And uh, especially when you, the first time you use them when they're damp, and that can be a little unnerving. And these, For sure. these, um, even on a wet day, uh, the the front disc brake didn't get grabby. It was real nice and progressive. And the rear brake um, is a 240 millimeter disc, and that has a single piston floating caliper. And that was really easy to use when when used in combination. And of course, out on the gravel roads. That's where, you know, it, it's easy to make a mistake with the front brake when you're on <laughs> loose gravel. And so there's a lot of trail braking going on. And I found that under all circumstances, it was like I had used this set of brakes forever. Uh, they were nice and progressive. Wow. If you need a lot more stopping power, you just squeeze the lever a little harder or push down on the foot, foot brake lever a little harder. And it was very progressive, so there were no surprises. Um, even when I had to make a couple of fairly hard stops on wet pavement in downtown Milwaukee, so um, I don't, I don't think they're going to have any complaints from people about the performance of the brakes. So, who would you say this bike is really sort of aimed at? Do you see a place where it fits in the market? I think a lot of people um, will find this bike. First and foremost, because of it's a, a great price point, you know, coming in, sure. um, coming in at the price level that uh, it is, and being adaptable. Uh, it's light, uh, like you say, you know, as an entry level bike, it would be great, but I think for it, much more advanced riders who just want something that they can get off road and be on road and be comfortable with. Um, obviously, the the high end touring people, the real hard bitten, high performance track day people, uh, you know, they they probably won't 
be running in to get in line to get them. But I think people who want a versatile machine that can be used uh, literally on the trail. Uh, I know the Himalayan is much more for the serious, uh, let's get way off the beaten path kind of rider. But right. I think this bike, this bike being as light as it is and it, with the same chassis geometry as the Himalayan itself and the same engine, uh, really adaptable power characteristics, the clutch and transmission work really well. You know, the only thing I, I noticed in the time riding it, for we put over 400 miles on that thing. Uh, wow. Only once did, I, I went to put the bike in neutral, and the neutral light was on, and, but when I started letting the clutch out, I noticed the bike was starting to move ahead, and the clutch was engaging. So only once did I get a false neutral, but all the other times, in the entire time, over 400 miles of riding, and sometimes, you know, quick shifting just to see how well it does and pushing it hard through the gears, it never missed a shift. So, you know, that that inspires confidence uh, when you don't sure. find a false neutral between third and fourth or anything like that. None of those kinds of things happen. So I think in, in the marketplace, people who just want a very basic, uh, affordable machine that can do more than just go down to the grocery store or get you to the office as a commuter bike. Uh, for the person who says, you know, I'm going to take it up to the lake this weekend, you know, um, and ride, right. do some right. hill riding, maybe get on some, some logging roads. Uh, this bike can actually do that kind of stuff. It sounds really good. It sounds like you you enjoyed the bike and, and were really quite impressed with it. Um, you know, irrespective of price point, it actually sounds like a good bike. Good motorcycle. The fact that it's inexpensive is is an additional attraction. Yeah, you know, um, a while back I had written an article about uh, the Honda Trail 90, and I called it the first true adventure bike. And if there was a bike that would be able to do all the kinds of things that you can do in the Upper Peninsula and, and riding on some of the true off-road trails, the advantage a bike like the 411 has is you can actually get out on the highway, whereas the old a bike like the Trail 90, uh, top speed 45 miles an hour, not so much. <laughs> right. um, yeah. And uh, you know, I can see, I could see somebody getting one of those uh, fork-leg scabbards for their shotgun, uh, like uh, the elderly fellow that I interviewed and, and wrote about a little bit uh, with his Trail 90. <laughs> he had a, he carried his 12-gauge shotgun for bird hunting, for partridge hunting, and uh, on that Trail 90, and he literally rode down old railroad grades. You could do that with the 411. But uh, again, right. like I say, the big difference is you can actually get out on the highway and do 30 or 40 or 50 miles uh, of highway riding very nicely and stay with the flow of traffic. Good. Okay. Thank you so much. I appreciate your insight into the bike. It sounds great. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Okay, you're very welcome, Gary. Thank you so much. In this second segment... I chat with movie writer, producer, and director Mark Neal. Of all the motorcycle documentary-style movies made, Mark's 2003 racing epic, Faster, has stood the test of time and is now arguably almost as iconic as on any Sunday. Faster was quickly followed by a sequel, 
faster and faster in 2004, and The Doctor, The Tornado and The Kentucky Kid in 2006. For 2011, Mark premiered Charge, Zero Emissions Maximum Speed, as well as Fastest. Finally, in 2015, Mark came out with Hitting the Apex. That one was narrated by Brad Pitt. Mark's exceptional storytelling shows the human side of racing and several of the stories behind the ecstasy of victory and the agony of defeat. In Catching Up with Mark, we hear his story, how Faster and its sequels came to be, and of course, what Mark is up to now. Whether you've watched any of these movies or not, I urge you to do so either for the first time or once again. Even if you're not much into motorcycle racing, they're well worth your time. You can find the whole set on Amazon. So sit back and hopefully you enjoy this episode. I actually started doing uh, bits and pieces for MTV when MTV started in Europe in 1987. And uh, they, they just wanted sort of interstitial bits of video to run between shows and things. And I was with friends experimenting and, and through that I met a guy who in the end uh, set up a TV show called Buzz and Buzz was kind of my film school. It, it, it was done for a year, uh, a 13 part show which played on MTV in America and Channel 4 in, in England and it got cancelled because it was it was too sort of mad and out of control and, and, and that was what was great about it but I learned sort of a, a lot of my stuff then which was just having a, quite an independent approach and, you know, shooting yourself, writing, researching, shooting, editing. Um, and, th and that stayed with me forever. And then I did, you know, I did music videos. Um, I was, I, I got into them, the way these things always sort of happen weirdly, that somebody from the show Buzz was involved in, was, was asked to help making a documentary about U2 um, because you two liked this show Buzz and, and, and then you two hired me on their rock and roll tour as a writer, which is a really strange job to have. And so I, right. and, 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 uh, but they were like, no, we, you know, they were doing this show called Zoo TV and they wanted to do, you know, more than just put the cameras on the band on the stage. So we, again, we invented various characters and, and things, video art and funny stuff and stupid stuff to run on the, all the screens on stage when they were performing. And, um, but, I, but I started out being hired as, as a writer and essentially that's what I've always thought of myself as, is as, as a writer who's learned to you know, hold a camera and to edit and, and do music as well, which is my other great love. Um, but it, it, from that, yeah, I did get into doing music videos. I mean, the first one I did was for U2 when they were the biggest band in the world. And, and again, just because I happened to be in a lift with Bono, if I can drop a name, that's the, with Bono. And he was saying, oh, we've got to do a new, we've got to do a video for the song Lemon, if you've got any ideas. And I had an idea. And, and, uh, and that was how my video, music video career started, because I made that video and so suddenly I was known as a music video director but I didn't really know how to do it and and, uh, and then uh, you know but, but again it was like it, it was a great way to learn stuff because then I had budgets and crews 
and, and I could shoot stuff, you know, properly, not not just kind of handheld super or video A. But... Actually, I checked out that video. It was quite interesting. You were you experimented with aspect ratios in there, you know, with sort of portrait and landscape. Yeah, yeah. you were playing around with black and white. And it was really, and then you'd suddenly, you know, cut to a real close-up shot of Bono. And I was like, this is fascinating. It is like quite interesting shooting. I mean, typical sort of music videos. And then you moved on. I saw you did stuff with Paul Weller. Yeah, yeah. One of my favorite tunes of all time, That's Entertainment from the Jam. Yeah, they're fantastic. Just fantastic. And he and he was, I, I'd met him once, you know, just as a fan at a concert. And I was really intimidated by him because you know he he had a real attitude um, and 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 uh and he was like that with everyone but 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 when i did by the time we got to do that that one which the the, the song that i did was um sunflower from the album wild wood in 93 um and and he'd mellowed out completely i mean i think then you know he'd done the style council and then he'd had sort of a difficult patch and, and it was just sweet. It was actually the most relaxed video shoot I've ever been on, I think. And I was I was really nervous about it. Um, so so it was that was a very good experience. But I never expected to stay in that world. Um, and, and 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 in fact, I didn't because I mean that was going well. I was getting more work in America than Britain, and so. It was either okay. Let's go and try and do try and make it in America, doing these music videos. Because at, like at one point, I got, you know, I was getting decent budgets. You know, you get you could as a director, you could make twenty or thirty grand just doing one video. So you think, all oh, right, if I can do like three of them a year, that covers all the rent and everything. So we went, to, we just decamped to Santa Monica, and we went there because we needed good schools because our son was three. And we thought, oh, we'll go there. And if, if it doesn't work out, we'll go back to England. And, 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 and it didn't really work out, but it worked out enough that we stayed um, because literally within, you know, nine months or a year of our arriving there, and we got there at the end of 97, um, you know, music videos sort of almost died because MTV started just making their own programming and becoming what they are now and hardly play music videos so they just weren't getting commissioned very much and also Napster happened and so suddenly all music was free and the music industry in general took a huge dive and we were there I was there thinking oh my god you know what am I going to do how am I going to provide for the family um but the positive side of that was that the digital technology, which like in the form of maps to kind of help kill the music industry for a while, you know, maim it for a while. Also, all these kind of cheap cameras and editing equipment had come along that meant that people like me could, could actually go back to what I had been doing in that first show, you know, just a few years before and start making stuff on my own. And that's that's when I, I made this, weird film about William Gibson, the science fiction writer, um, in uh, 2000, yeah, like, so I started doing that pretty much, I, I, I knew him and I knew he wanted to do a documentary and I couldn't figure out, again, it's like, I didn't know what to do, you know, I proposed all these different ideas to him and he didn't really like them, but I was a big William Gibson fan um, and, and, you know, 
he, he was just somebody else fascinated by, and he influenced, you know, the, the Matrix is like massively influenced by him. Um, like, so that kind of cyberpunk thing, I was really interested in. So I made this, I made a documentary, you know, a 90 minute documentary about him, which did well in, in festivals. Um, I played at Slam Dance, which is like the, the indie alternative to, to Sundance. And, and it, did, it, it actually did really well, but, but um, it, it didn't really make any money. It was on, on the IFC channel in, in the States. And then, and then, you know, we tried to distribute it ourselves, you know, selling, because it was still VHS tapes then. So VHS, and, it was, and DVD was starting. So, and that really didn't go very well because we, you know, we ended up with loads of videotapes that nobody wanted because everybody wanted the new DVD. So I learned from that, that, you know, it's actually very hard to make any money being an independent filmmaker, even if you make a film about, about a guy, a, you know, a science fiction writer who's got a big following around the world, but maybe people just want to read his books and they're not too bothered about watching a film about him. So, that was when I started really trying to make faster. Is where it, it, it is around that time, and and um, the one thing that I carried over from No Maps, which is the name of the William Gibson film, it's called No Maps for These Territories, was was interviewing people in a car because, which is what I did in Faster, you know, but because. Um, the, the only way, because I couldn't convince William Gibson that, you know, to do anything, although, you know, like he, he really wanted to do a documentary, but he was just very wary about how we would do it. So in the end, uh, I just said, well, just get in my car and we'll drive around LA when you're in town for, because he, he, he had various <clears throat> movie projects. And uh, he, he lives in Vancouver, um, though he's American, but he's married to a, a Canadian. Um, so he would come down and, you know, fairly regularly and I'd drive him around. That's how he started doing it. And then we drove to, to Vancouver and then, and then did a bit in New York. And the, and the whole car was, uh, sorry, the whole film was basically shot in the car. Except he got out once to go for a walk on the beach in uh, Vancouver. And so we, and we made this and, and then I edited it in a very kind of experimental way, you could say. Um, and... Uh, you know, and I tried everything I could to make it, you know, kind of commercial. I got Bono in, in it and I got The Edge and Daniel Lanois to do some music for it. But it still, it was a really hard sell. And that's so why I thought, God, I don't know, you know, I don't know what to do. But at that time, you know, actually, while I was doing that, I had already met a guy called Ian McLean, whose father, Bob McLean, ran the, what, 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 what was the Red Bull Yamaha team at that point. And, 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 and so that's how fast it started. But it's the most bizarre thing. It's like my, because we just arrived in Santa Monica and he and his wife with their little daughter, who's the same age as my son, like literally met in a park down by the, you know, the beach. <laughs> and we, were, we, just, we were new there. And so we, started, we spoke to each other and then they invited us to their house. <clears throat> And, and, and on the wall in Ian's house were, were pictures of Gary McCoy on a, on a Red Bull Yamaha bike. And, and, and I said, what, what, are you a big fan of MotoGP? Because I am. And, and, uh, and he said, well, actually, it's my dad's team. So, you know, <laughs> what, what are the chances of, of right. that? 
<laughs> so, you know, thank the children for that. You know, the children were playing together, so the grown-ups had to speak to each other, and, and it went from there. But it took a long, you know, that was not, that was probably, you know, sometime in mid-98. And obviously we didn't start shooting until uh, June 2001. Um, so it, it was a long old process. But once I saw that chance, you know, of, of I just thought, you know, what has there been since on, on any Sunday that we all love? And and, and uh, so so within honestly within the first few months of being in America, that that became that that's what I want to do next. And then when I made the William Gibson film, and you know we kind of barely broke even, and and it didn't really it cost about you know thirty five grand to make, and, and we, we made about thirty five grand. <laughs> I, th I thought you know I I got to be I got to do something more commercial, but also something that I love and and uh, obviously I love motorcycles and I'd grown up I grew up in I'm from the north of England I'm, I'm from Lancashire but okay but we moved when I was six my mom remarried and we moved right to the other end of the country and lived in a little village called Wootton which is about a mile from Lytton Hill racetrack so um. which is you know near Dover near just off the A2 as you're heading for Dover. Sure. So that, and that was my, that became my, my entertainment really. I was, I was seven years old with a bicycle and I would, I would go down there and jump over the fence and, and just look around and, you know, it, it was the, it was brilliant. Cause I would just, you know, go around the paddock and, and I, and I loved the bikers cause they would just, they looked like they were having a really good time. You know, they were there with their vans and their girlfriends and the radio on and they're smoking and having a drink afterwards. And <laughs> they, they were much, you know, to, to me, you know, you know, so, and I was on a bicycle, so I could think that I was, when I was pedaling home, I could think like, you know, I'm, 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 I'm kind of like them, I'm on two wheels. And, uh, and that instilled in you a love of racing. No, it really did. It did. I, I go there a lot. You know, any weekend there was a, there was a, you know, because they had, they had motocross, they had rallycross, they had speedway sometimes, and oh, wow. they, they had all kinds of stuff. And and it, obviously, you know, road racing, uh, and and cars and bikes. But it was for me, it was the bikes, and and uh, and that's how it started. Yeah, that that's that's absolutely amazing. So you decided to make faster, but. How did you get all the funding together? Who was it narrated it? Was it Ewan? Yeah, Ewan McGregor. Yeah, that's that was quite a coup to get him. Yeah, no, it really, it really was. Well, you know, obviously, you know, Ian McLean, who who's the guy I met, whose whose father Bob, you know, with Peter Clifford, they they, they were called WCM, but anyway, it was it was the Red Bull Yamaha team with with uh, Gary McCoy and Simon Crayford had been with them right and then john john hopkins came in uh, but anyway so so that, that i mean obviously you think okay there there's some money here i mean just to be kind of crude you know like the, the, right. the, and and um and so you know ian is the guy who put the money together i mean it took him a while because you know it, we were trying to get like a million bucks together and right and he did you know we did you know we, our budget was like 800 grand which which is actually 
more or less what all of them have cost. And it's, you know, it's just very hard to get, to get, it's just very hard to get money. So I was really, I mean, obviously there's a lot of luck involved in that. It's like meeting this guy whose dad got the team and then, you know, because of the world that they're in and, and, and their connections, they were able to put the money together. So, the, you know, the, that was one part of it, which I, I could see that that was gonna be possible, but you couldn't see that it would be possible to get the right sorted out with Dorna and Peter and Bob both helped with that. So that, that was, you know, like th those levers were all important to kind of opening the door. Um, sure. And then, then the, you know, the, the, the sort of third part of it was that, you know, they had, Bob and Peter had Dorna's ear and Dorna wanted to come to America. And so when they heard those, there's, there's like what they thought was an American director, you know, they obviously thought of Hollywood and, and, um, and, <laughs> you know, and obviously, you know, I, I wasn't at all, um, but uh, well, that was how it started. You know, so the pieces then it then took quite a while. I don't, you know, maybe it, maybe when we started, it wasn't so clear that Dawn wanted to come to America. But when we actually met them, and we didn't meet them until like February of two thousand one, when me and Ian went to, or maybe it was March, we went to the Hareth test, the preseason test, and that's when we met Dawn, and. Uh, and then, you know, anyone who's worked with them will tell you that they're really hard to work with, to deal with. They're just hard, they're hard asses. And, and right. you know, they, they, they don't make anything easy. But they, they like, they like this project. It's just, oh, right, okay. And, and so one of the things I said, which I was, as always, very optimistic about, is like, you know, obviously there are like Hollywood A-listers like Ewan McGregor, who would be interested in this. But I, I, I didn't know Ewan McGregor at all <laughs> he was a biker and so he, he, that, that stuff's like catnip to, to, to Dorna. Dorna loves celebrities and they also right. they never stopped asking me when Bono was going to come to a race and he never went to a race but uh, <laughs> <laughs> so there's, there's like this just these weird levels that things happen so when you're talking to Dorna you know honestly and I'm genuinely I thought well if I can get to you and I, I reckon He'd be into it because he sounds like a cool guy and he rides bikes and everything. Right. So, so, so it was you know like these things happened you know and, and at the time you just you could never see around the corner. So I had no idea that it would work out to be honest. But once we had that meeting, you know, Ian and Bob and Peter, you know, pushed it and and you know within three months we we started shooting um, in you know. June of 2001 um, but Ewan I I you know I just first first of all I thought well I don't know if I'm going to get him so you know ideally he would be the narrator um, but as I don't know that I can get him I'll try and write very little narration so that you know if someone else has to do it it won't be you know it would be too much of a, of a, of a famous <laughs> voice. So, so, um, so what happened is like we nearly finished it, and 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 I had tried to get you know I'd written to his production company, I'd got in touch with his agent, and they all like what is it? It's a motorbike film. No, no, no. Like any, we don't want Ian, we don't want you and anywhere near motorbikes. And 
then I, then I, through a friend of a friend, um, I managed to send a rough cut when we were nearly finished to Ewan, who was in Louisiana. Um, and this, so this would be, you know, March, February, maybe February or March of 2003. So we had to finish it. Um, and I, I, we, so through this friend of a friend, I, I sent a VHS tape to, to Ewan and, you know, and just sort of prayed basically. And, and, uh, and, and I wrote my phone number on it. And anyway, I got home, like literally, that it had arrived there. We checked it had arrived, it had been signed for. And the next day I got home and there was this really weird message on the answer phone. And it was, and it, was it sounded like Valentino Rossi. And it was like, hey, Mark, I see the film I like it very much. And I was like, what's this? Because it, it, it doesn't really, it's not it's not Rossi. It can't be Rossi. You can't. It's a, and they say, hey, Mark, it's you and McGregor. I, I, I love the film and I'd love to narrate it. Wow. <clears throat> and, and, and then two days later, we were on a plane to Montgomery, Alabama. And, you know, the next day we were in Birmingham recording the narration. And then it was done. And then, and at the same time, wow. I found out that he was he was going to go to Cannes because my, my the other thing I've been sort of telling people wouldn't it be cool if we went to the Cannes Film Festival? And I knew that it, the Cannes Film Festival was between the Spanish Grand Prix and the French Grand Prix. You know, it li literally smacked between those two races in that two, two week period. And and then, but it's another Ewan was going to be there anyway for another film. So, <laughs> so, so that's how the, the, the thing sort of like, oh, right, okay. And that's, that's so that, you know, but all of those things were like, were planned at the very last minute and happened, you know, there's, there's so much luck and, 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 and you know, happenstance and, and, you know, it, it sort of suggests that if you really go for it, things work out. But I was really lucky with the, the things went the way they did. Well. As my mom always used to say, it's better to be born lucky than rich. Yeah, yeah. And you know, and I think she might have been right. Yeah. yeah, that's absolutely amazing. What a what a story. You know, full credit to you for creating a documentary style that's so captivating. I mean, you managed to wind all these different stories into this into this one movie, and you you covered these different subjects and you know obviously the sort of the Rossi, Rossi Biagi rivalry as well as the whole John Hopkins thing and it, it, it was a very capturing storytelling and I think well based on based on recent experiences with you know Drive to Survive in Formula One and these kind of major successes I mean you were way ahead of ahead of your time. Spe speaking of which have you looked at did you look at Unlimited last year and sort of think Oh my God! You know why didn't they ask me to do this? Or yeah, 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 sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think again. Um, I mean, Amazon actually did approach me, but but you know, I think that was something that Dorna had been planning for a while, and they wanted to do it, you know, their way. So, um, but yeah, obviously, you know, I, yeah, I would have loved to do that, but but um, I, I think you know, there's things 
like the sport had been growing and growing for a, a long time. I, you know, Rossi was, but at that point, everyone kind of knew Rossi. Rossi's done, and I don't know. I mean, I just don't know anything about it really. How, how it went down, what, why they did what they did. Um, right. But 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 um, I'm just really happy to have done what we did, and and it always felt like we were kind of getting away with. You know, nobody was telling us what to do. And, you know, and to Dorna's credit, I'll say that they never asked us to change anything. Um, there was there was one one point in FASTA where a mechanic referred to the, the Italian fans who were trying to smash the door down in Mugello at the end of the race, you know, when they invade the track. And they came into pit lane and, the, and, the, and, the, and a mechanic referred to the fans as animals. And, and, and Dorna said, you know, Quite correctly said, no, you can't say the Italians are animals, but so <laughs> that, but that was the only thing we had to change. And and um, so no, like I say, I'm 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 really happy to have done what we did, and it did feel like we were doing something new, and 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 also doing something that people people I just thought, well, if me and my friends like it, you know, other people who ride bikes, and if we like it, and I would show it to friends when we were cutting it, and. And also show it to my wife's friends. It's very important to show it to American housewives who don't know anything about motorbike racing. Right. And then if they, if they, and that, oh, that Italian guy is quite cute. And, and you know, I mean, just <laughs> how they respond or, you know, but, but, but just that thing of telling the stories in the ways that people don't get bored and weaving those stories together. And I really wanted to include, you know, as we did, Wayne and, and, Wayne Rainey, Kevin Schwantz, Mick Doohan. Sure. And that worked really well, having them talking about Rossi and Biaggi and vice versa. Um, and also, and even Eddie Lawson. We've got Eddie Lawson. Wow. Yeah, I remember. I remember going to the premiere and me and my friends were all absolutely captivated. And we were like, and of course, this was in the heyday of motorcycling before the, yeah. the Great Recession and all of that stuff. So it was like, wow, this was we were blown away. We were absolutely blown away. It really was. And then, of course, you then you then did it again and went to faster and faster, like a year later. Yeah. How did you pull that off so quickly on the heels of the first one? And then followed up by the Dr. Tornado and Kentucky Kid. Yeah. Like two years after that. Yeah, no, I know. You must have been like a madman, I should think. Yeah, I, I was... Um, what, what happened was, we obviously, we finished faster. And then, you know, we did... The, the 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 premiere at Cannes, and then it's we you know, as with my early, early, earlier experience with the, the first film that I'd done about William Gibson, it it was really hard to get distribution, and you'll get, you know, distributors will offer you like nothing, or you know, or you know you're going to get ripped off, and so we decided that you know we're gonna we're gonna self-distribute this and and that's what we did we, we we you know we had a website it was all early you know early in that whole world of websites and subscriber lists but we built up a big subscriber list of about like fifteen thousand people um quite a few of whom would would write threatening emails saying where is the film you know because we, <laughs> like, it was canned and then it was like and the people were expecting it you know and, and then and then it was like six months gone past, nine months, like, and I was, you know, I was starting to get death threats, like, after about nine months. <laughs> and and, uh, and oh, but what man. we did was, you know, we, we, we took that time 
to 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 make faster and faster. And the and the other thing that was vital to that is that at that point I was in the process of getting a green card, and I travelled on temporary travel papers to go to a film festival in Milan where they were showing faster at the end of 2003. And when I flew back to LA, they wouldn't let me in. They said, your, your temporary travel permit has been tampered with and you can't come in. So I was, I was put on a plane straight back to England. And oh, no. then, my, then my family was, you know, like two months later, they were deported and we were completely legal people. You know, I was on an O-1 visa and we were there legitimately, but we and this was like not long, you know. I mean, it was two years after 9-11, but the, the, there was still just crazy level of security. And and you know, the the the, the department of, of homemade security put us on the plane, put me on the plane, and so 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 I was stuck in England, and 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 so, and so me and Ian talked. I said, well, why don't I just go and film some more stuff? And, you know, it's taking us so long to get distribution. Like, I'll make another thing. And, and uh, we don't know how long it would be. I mean, it's, you know, it's half the length of the, of the uh, faster. But then, so I was there. And I ended up, you know, I went to Valencia to the tests. I went to Barcelona for the preseason tests. It was when Rossi left Yamaha and went to, sorry, when Rossi left Honda and went to Yamaha. So there was, so it was a really interesting off season. And, the, and you know, we did right. Valencia, then the Valencia test, and then we did the first test of 2004, and then he went and won it at, at Welcome or on the Yamaha. And so, yeah, we did it on a shoestring. You know, it was, it was, it was, at that point, there were, there were three of us, like me and, <laughs> me and Grant. So we had a couple of cameras and Danny, who was our production uh, producer in Barcelona. And, um, and, so that, and so that's what we did. Again, it was like, we said to Dornos, look, it's taken a while to get distribution, you know, juggling all these different things. And so just saying, but don't worry, it'll work out. Because they were saying, where's the film? You know, you've done the thing. <laughs> and so it was all, it was all crazy. And, and, and so we were saying, well, you know, we'll, we'll put out the version of, a version of the film on its own first. And then later in 2004, we'll put out a deluxe edition with the film and this second shorter film. Uh, and that's what we did. I mean, it didn't make total sense. Um, and Paul <laughs> said, okay, you can do that if you just make, if you just, if you're just making like a 10 minute thing as an extra DVD thing, okay. But then we just made it, you know, it, it was naturally longer. And so, you know, <laughs> it's a short film. And um, so that's, that's how we did it. But, and you know, and they let me back into, we got back into America like like a week before that premiere at, at, at the Arclight. Did you see it at the Arclight in Hollywood? Or I believe I did. Yes, I yeah. think I did. So, I mean, I got back like you know, I finally got back into America. I was out for five months trying to source out <laughs> my green card, and uh, with you know long-suffering friends in London who, who I was staying with. Um, so you know, it was crazy. It really was crazy. You know, and there was no money left at all, and but we had to keep going. And then, like while I was there, and you know, this is at the end of two thousand three when I got shot out of America. 
I was in London and I saw Ewan because Ewan and Charlie Borman were preparing to do Long Way Round. And, uh, you know, at this point, you know, far, like I had to give my life to finishing faster and releasing faster. But one day they said to me, do, do you want to be the other guy on the bike? Do you want to come with us and film Long Way Round? <laughs> and I, and I, and I, and I, I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I really do. But, you know, my family's here, we've got to get back to America, you know, because it was exactly then when they, they were setting off, wow. I think in, in, you know, April. Um, so, but, you know, we became good friends and everything. And then, to, so then to do the narration of Faster and Faster, I went and met them in, in Alaska when they arrived in Anchorage, <laughs> which was in like July, I think. So, you know, they were sitting on the last leg across America to New York. So whenever that was, like June, July. So I flew up there and we did um, the recording in this studio called Surreal Studios or Surrealistic Studios. And it was that time of year where it never gets dark in, 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 in Alaska. So again, it was like, just felt completely mad. And these guys had just come from Siberia and the whole thing was just, if, uh, uh, it, it, was, it was brilliant, but it was, you know, the, the whole time, everything just felt, kind of bonkers, you know, it really did. It's like, what are we doing? And and, and um, anyway, so that's how we got the faster and faster narration done. And um, and then uh, and then we finished editing it. And so it was all done. Everything was done by the end of 2004. Um, and then, like you say, like early in 2005, Red Bull got in touch and that's how the Dr. Tornado and Kentucky Kid started. That's absolutely amazing. What a story. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then, and then, and then, yeah. Then you sort of moved on after the, the Dr. The Tornado, yeah. you know, which sort of carried on the same theme. Mm. You then, in 2011, you went to, uh, you know, the zero emissions thing and the electric bikes on the Isle of Man. Yeah. Again, that was a sort of a big game-changing time. Yeah. Um, that was absolutely fascinating. I remember talking to Michael Sizz about, about the Moto Sizz bike. Yeah. Uh, he said, we're pushing something like 1,600 amps through this, and I've got a box full of melted tools. It's just a matter of time until someone dies. I, he called me. Michael rang me up in January of... 2009 was the first one when it was it was called the TTX GP and then it became TT Zero. So we went in 2009 and 2010, and he called me up and he put you know he was putting a, he, he was putting everything he had into into you know first the what he wanted to um, make the, you know the Moto GP bike and then this and so he put up some money. Uh, again, you know, we made it on a shoestring, but I thought it was so interesting that I wanted to do it. And we got the rest of the money from the, from the Isle of Man government, basically, um, which took a long time. But, but we, anyway, we had enough to, you know, Michael, Michael put up enough to go and shoot the first year, which, and, and yes, filming them, building it and testing it, you know, it was, it was always like electrocuting people and, and nobody, obviously nobody got badly hurt. But, um, but the whole, the, you know, like it was a complete unknown for him, and they had a few really good guys working with him. Yeah. 
and you know like under a lot of pressure you know very little time you know that team put it together and you know i think they they, had, they just had no development time so it, it went completely wrong on the island and and you know it got like in the actual race it got two miles down the road and conked out and and uh it was awful because like they you know during the practice sessions they had a lot of trouble and then and then we did one test session at, at jerby airfield you know where they do you know the flat very flat nothing like the the tt course but anyway and it seemed to be perfect and and uh you know probably if he hadn't done that long test session he just let the bike be it would have been fine in the race but the next day it it conked out you know it just it, it melted itself um because and he had three motors on it he had like three times as much power as anyone else the poor guy i mean he was he was destroyed you know he just disappeared um and you see in the film in in charge you you, you see him the bikes go off and then there's like you know, a minute before he gets to the room where he can look at the timing screen and the bikes go through the first checkpoint and his is not there. So, he, and he's like, oh, we'll get to the first checkpoint. And then he just left. And I had to go and find him at the end of the day. He was, you know, it was, I really, I really felt for him. But, but um, so next year he, he went back and did what he wanted to do and you know built a bike that worked really well and went very fast yeah he was an amazing guy it was such a tragedy that he passed away yeah i know i know it's it, you yeah. know yeah i absolutely i absolutely loved him i actually uh ended up narrating the documentary on him oh yeah on discovery yeah the producers asked me to come on camera yeah i suspect that they ran out of money and couldn't afford a voiceover guy so they called me up and went hey arthur would you narrate this thing i'm like I'm not a narration guy. I don't know what about. They went, oh, you'll you'll figure it out. And <laughs> so no, I saw that. That was really, that was really good. Yeah, I mean, that was that was when he was doing the MotoGP bike. Yes, yeah, it was all about the MotoGP yeah. bike. Yeah. Right. So anyway, but so I got I got to be sort of you know pretty good friends with him over that. He was really just a lovely fella. But uh, but anyway, yeah. So so wow. So you so you went from that. And then you went back to back to the other films, you know, fastest, and then hitting the apex. Yeah. And uh, I, I watched a couple of them the other day. I watched hitting the apex um, again a couple of nights ago. What a great, you know, just great storytelling and how it all works. It's got to be so addictive making these things. I should think, isn't it? You get locked into these gladiators and all the craziness and. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's that's the one, you know, where, I mean, I just felt like at that point, I, I'd learned a lot about, you know, filmmaking and, 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 and had made enough of those films to have a sense of, you know, okay, what, what do I, you know, how can I make it appeal more to a wider audience and, yeah, man, it is. It's all about the storytelling. It's all about the characters, and and then and how finely can you weave together multiple storylines, and and how long can you do that for? Because that's a long film. You know, it's two and two, nearly two hours twenty minutes. Um, much longer than faster and faster is um, And you, you know, it's it's the kind of length that films should get 
criticize books. Like, it's too long, you know. It's, you know. But but I I don't think it is that you know we and and, and when I I spent a, obviously a long time editing it, and uh, and you do yeah you, you I mean it's 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 like writing a novel or something at that point. It's very solitary because I'd like to do a lot of the editing alone. And then I, I do work with other editors to, you know, to, to polish it or, you know, give certain sections for them and to say, you know, try something here. But usually because of budget, but also because it's a good way to do it. Because you're composing it when you're editing. You, you have a plan at the beginning you know some of what's happened, you know, there's certain things you're gonna, that have already happened that you're gonna include. And then you've got a feeling of how they might go, but you don't know. Um, and then a lot of things happen that you could never imagine would happen. Um, so you're always kind of course correcting as you go along. And, and then once you've got all the material and you've got all the dawner material, which is the other thing that I always did. I would go into their edit bay. You, you become this kind of, you know, subterranean creature that just lives in dark rooms. And, <laughs> right. and for, for, for days, I mean, I would just go through, and again, it's the digital world. You can just, you can go through every camera at every session, at every track, at every race. Wow. Which is, you know, hundreds, it's thousands of hours of stuff. So you've got to have an idea of what, what you want. But you find, you know, there, there's there's gold in there, in, yeah. in, in you know, in those in those edit bays at, at Dorna. So you know, I would always try and do that. So so you know, I probably spent for hitting the apex. I probably spent a total of ten days just pulling together Dorna archive, and then you take that home, and you've got then I've got all the stuff that we shot. And so with hitting the apex, I had way more material than for any other film, um, and and. Uh, and then you you must not panic. You know you've got so much stuff. That's <laughs> uh, and it took me it, it took me a year to edit that. And I had you know an English editor and an Australian editor, both great friends right. from way back, who came in at various times. And 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 I had an assistant um, who was great. Um, so you know. You're not on your own, but basically that's when you've got to say, okay, this is it, and, I, and, and you've got to cut it and make it work, and and then show it to Brad Pitt, who got involved. Again, it was like you and McGregor. I, I I didn't know that I could get him, but I knew that he I knew he liked faster because I know I, you know I know a couple of people who, who know him, but I didn't know him, and um, so I I rang I rang him up I rang up his production company <laughs> in. In, in early 2012, yeah, and I said, I want to do another film. And I, and I didn't hear anything. So I called them again and I wrote to them, I wrote to his production company. And, and, and I said, please, will you give this letter to Brad? And I didn't hear anything, but that was April. And, uh, and then in July, I went to Laguna Seca to talk to Dawn, just to say, look, I really would love to do you know, the, 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 another film. And this time, you know, I'm talking to Brad Pitt about it. And I didn't say that he wasn't talking back to me, I just said, I'm talking to Brad Pitt. <laughs> and, and then, you know, like, you never know. And so, but they, they were open to it. I mean, I think at that point, 
they knew that in general people like the films and the films were being shown around the world. So, so then um, I thought, oh, well, that's good. You know, Dorna are open to it. Um, and then I got home and like literally, you know, two weeks later, I got a letter from, from Brad Pitt saying, if you're doing this, I'm interested in helping you. Um, and that was August of 2012. But I didn't actually meet him until December 2014, at which point I, I was, you know, he, and he knew about the film, and like through a producer there, and he'd seen you know, bits and pieces that I'd done. Um, but I think he thought that it would just kind of get finished, and if he liked it, he might narrate it. I mean, that's about as far as I got, really. <laughs> um, but 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 by the end of that year, I was in I was in quite a bit of trouble with Universal because I was late delivering it, and um, and so then I you know I, I just basically made a call and, and asked and said, Brad, I really need your help, and so he. It was very, in the end, it was quite easy. And spoke to Universal and just said, Mark needs a bit more time. And that's when I met him. And then he said, well, you better come in here. Um, and it was brilliant because, you know, obviously on the one hand, it's really nerve wracking. So, because suddenly I was on, you know, where his studio is on um, a lot in, you know, proper old Hollywood, right. um, where they, Quentin Tarantino was shooting his, like the, Hateful Eight, I think, on the soundstage there. So it was quite, it was a real trip to go in there. And there's always Tarantino's people wandering around in cowboys, <laughs> you know, wow. drinking coffee. And, and I, I, I was in a little writer's, what used to be a writer's room for the Lucy show. It was where the, Lucy and Desi Arnaz. Oh, wow. That was their play originally. So it was an old Hollywood studio. Right. And so it sounds kind of cool, but it was a very, it's an old wooden building up on the first floor with really kind of musty old carpets and like, you know, wonky tables. And the view outside the window was not of the Hollywood sign, it was of a brick wall with razor wire on top of it. So it kind of felt like you were in prison. And, uh, but, but, but obviously it was a well defended place. I mean, not because of Brad, but just because that was a, you know, a, a big, Hollywood studio with tight security. So I was there for, um, you know, best part of four months finishing it. And he'd come in most days and, um, and he, he was great. So he really enjoyed it, I think, and, you know, it was, it, it was an amazing time. Um, and it was, it was, you know, there wasn't a lot to do. We just needed time to finish it properly and do the music properly and, and do all those little things which, just take a lot of time um and and he allowed that to happen wow that's awesome uh and then, and then he narrated it so you know a very big thing without him it would not exist or well, at least it wouldn't have been good yeah well it really was good yeah i found it's really easy pretty much with any project it's really easy to get it to about 95 percent yeah. And that happens very quickly yeah and then the final five percent takes freaking ages and it really doesn't matter what you're talking about, you know, but uh, certainly in terms of editing, you know, video and audio editing, you can bang something out very quickly. And but then to, to get the details right. Oh, my God. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, that's awesome. But uh, but of course, that that then begs the question of what are you going on to next? Yeah, well, um, 
Well, we started another one. So there is one that's, you know, I like to think that at some point we'll finish it. <laughs> because, you know, because 2015 happened and, you know, in hitting the apex, Marquez has just arrived. Right. And, and um, you know, and he and Rossi seem to be buddies. <laughs> at, the, at the start of the season, they were. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it all went a bit pear-shaped by the end of the season, though, didn't it? Yeah, exactly. So, so you know, obviously, that's the big one. It's like, what happened between them? What happened in 2015? Yeah, so we did start an, another one. Actually, we, we started shooting in 2016. And, you know, Brad was really keen to... To, you know, so you see what happens next. You know, what's, what's going to happen? Right, right. So we started it, but but uh, like the, 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 I think the business stuff. That, I don't know. I don't know because stuff happened behind closed doors that I don't know about. But you know, I think that at, at that point, just people's expectations, like maybe at Universal, maybe at Dora. I don't know where, but you know. There's never going to be a multi-million dollar budget for a film like that. And it, I think it sort of got stuck because, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know who or why, but but um, it's sort of on hold for now. But we've shot loads, you know, I mean, it's very frustrating, obviously. I like to think that we'll finish it. Maybe it's one of those films that takes 10 years to, to get done and it might be better for it in the end. Um, you know, we'll see even just in the last couple of years i mean moto gp is now so closely you know closely fought i mean these things are so i mean these guys are within you know one second covers the top 15 guys or whatever so it, it, you know it's all so rapidly changing and and there's lots of controversy going on as well of course as always yeah it was quite interesting i mean i watched the first season of drive to survive and yeah. I mean, I grew up watching Formula One. My dad loved Formula One and he and I did. And once the, when the sort of the modern era started, for whatever reason, I just kind of lost the taste for it. Um, yeah. And, you know, I'm all, I've always been into MotoGP, but, but Formula One, I just kind of, uh, and, and, but then when Drive to Survive came on, uh, you know, what was it, probably four years ago, it completely yeah. reignited me for it. And I thought, yeah. this is really good. You know, the the fly on the wall and looking at the smaller teams. And yeah, yeah. and I thought, this has got Mark Neal stamped all over it. But of course it didn't. But, um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a great format. Like I say, you're really very much a, a pioneer in all of that. And I would love to. I was so excited for Unlimited. And and unfortunately, Dawn had kind of screwed up the launch with, you know, the, the whole... Um, you know, fake voice tracks, you know, thing. And I happened to be in Australia for a month when it came out and it wasn't in Australia. And so, yeah. But actually the actual programming, if you go back and watch it, is actually pretty good. They did a pretty good job with it, I think the storytellers. But, um, but it's gonna be quite interesting to see where all of this goes. Have you, have you ever been interested in any other series? I mean, for instance, World Superbike, also owned by Dorna. World Superbike has got a bunch of stories going on in it. Have you ever been tempted to do that? Or is there just not enough time or money in it? I, I actually, no, I, think, I mean, the, the racing is great. I've been watching it this year. It's really good, you know, like... The, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. So, yeah, so, no, I've always loved it. And of course, you know, when, when, when 
Carl Fogarty was the king. And, you know, Fogarty <laughs> and Troy Bayliss and all those guys. And it was, you know, World Superbike in those years in England, in the, you know, the sort of early 90s, mid 90s, was bigger than MotoGP. Uh, right. Massively big. Oh. You know, I think, I think one year, you know, you went to Brands Hatch for World Superbike and there was 100,000 people there. And, yeah. and for Donington MotoGP, there was something like 18,000, not even 20,000, because Mick Brown right. was winning all the races and, and it was, you know, it was, so it was, so yeah, so back, yeah, back then, but, but um, yeah, no, it's, it's, I think it's the, 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 you know, the money is hard to find at the best of times for, for these things. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but, but um, yeah, and, and I don't know, yeah, it's all, it's, like it's all very different, as you say, and, and just just the, you know the fact that when we did faster, you know there, there were no there was nobody else apart from the TV cameras. There was there, there was nobody else wandering around. Now there's like there are there are dozens of cameras like Sky and BT and 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 then all the riders have got their own social media stuff and everyone's you know posting stuff, and so you know it, it's being mediated like to death these days whereas yeah we could sort of walk into any garage more or less if you ask nicely and uh yeah i mean obviously we saw all that change as we went along um but it's that you know i mean it's i think it's harder to to just have the kind of access that we had and and with faster faster in particular we had great access because we were actually with a team so we could just hang out with gary mccoy and john hopkins in the garage and with peter clifford and and you know the, the the guys who owned the team wouldn't let us in um so so we had a really solid base right inside the, the paddock um so yeah i don't know um but no right right now you know i'm, I'm here in in italy and the, the i actually have recently done a moto gp thing which is which is if you play the moto gp video game there's, there's a, there's a, I, 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 this, the company that makes that game um, is based in Milan and, and they're called Milestone. And they called me up like two years ago and said, do you want to do a video game? And, and, and they, I ended up doing it last year and it's, and it's come out this spring. Um, so if you get the video game, it's got the proper video game, which is, you know, you can do the championship, you can ride whatever, right? you like a conventional video game. And then there's, there's this other special game within it, which is called Nine. And it's, a, you replay the 2009 season. And so when they told me, they said, I, so you immediately say, well, how do you have a game when you know all the results already? It's like, how do you, how do, you do that? How do you turn 2009 into a game? And they said, well, you know, we want to have videos. We want to have, like, videos which tell the story from start to finish, every race. And we want you to do those. But each of those videos will break off into a, a section of gaming. So, so, for example, the first bit of game that you have is at the first race, Qatar 2009. You are Casey Stoner. You, you're, like, two seconds ahead of Rossi. You've got to extend your lead to five seconds within the next four laps, which is what he did. Like, 
Um, and, and then, wow. so, so, and then, and then you, there are like 30 or 35 game sequences like that, where you're put in a position and it's like, okay, you're, you're Stoner at Jerez and you've got to fight off Lorenzo until he crashes. And, and which is because Lorenzo did crash out trying to pass Stoner. And so, and it's actually, you know, it sounded really weird, in the, but it turned out really well. And, and um, so I actually, I have made a sort of film of 2009, and uh, interesting. So, so yeah. I mean, I don't know who's gonna, you know, like right. how many people will see it, but but um, so it's uh, you know, there's about 50 minutes of video. But obviously, if you play all the game, it, it, you know, it, it's going to take you some hours to work your way from the beginning of the season to the end. And um, I'll send you, I'll, I'll send you a link so, so you can see the videos. Awesome. I'd love to see that. So just finally, you hinted at um, a sort of a new project that was maybe coming out next year. Are you able to tell us anything about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah well, I mean, I'm making it now, again, independently, kind of on a shoestring. But what, like two years ago, for, I, I was, again, through a friend of a friend, I was hired to make some little short pieces about this area and they, they, they now market this part of Italy as Mota Valley and it, which is basically the area from sort of round about here from sort of Misano up to Verano the track up near Parma okay um but yeah it's basically the the region of Emilia Romagna um they market it as Mota Valley and it's where you know Bologna and Modena are at the center so it's Ducati, Ferrari, Lamborghini, Pagani, um, all of those brands, and it's the racetracks like Imola, Misano, not Mugello, because that's just over the border, right. and, and not Pesaro, which is where Benelli is, you probably know all that stuff, and, and, and where Rossi is as well, he's, he's not in Emilia-Romagna, he's in the next region down. So anyway, the, the, but they wanted some little short films about this region. So I made these things called Motor Valley Stories, which are on YouTube. And, and, um, and, and so what I'm doing now is the, is, the, is, the, is the child of that project because I'm making something that's much more about racing because they're completely obsessed here with racing. They, you know, they race and it's where you know, mini moto racing, you know, emerged here. They, they, <laughs> right. you know, there were always monkey bikes and things like that. But here, there's a, there was a guy called Vittoriano Orazzi who was into racing model cars very seriously. And he went so seriously that he went to Japan to do a race there. And he saw one of the, the little mini pocket bikes, the mini GP bikes, which was being sold as a toy in, in Tokyo. So he bought one, I mean, it had an engine. And he bought one and he took it to bits and put it in a suitcase and brought it back here. And then he started making them. And so all the mini motorbikes, mini motorbikes in the world for a while came from here. And it's what Rossi started on. And you know, so all those guys started racing on a track down, just down the road that way or another one up there. And, and they started building purpose-built mini motorbikes tracks anyway there's stuff like that whether it's Minimoto or this weekend I'm going to Misano because it's the Misano classic weekend which is the best event of the year and and what it is it's like not not many spectators go but loads of people go with their bikes 
and they're any age from like teenagers, not, not many teenagers, but right up to 80 year olds. And then they, and then, you know, there's bikes that are obviously mostly quite old bikes, you know, a lot of stuff in the 60s, 70s, 80s, a lot of, you know, quite unusual old Italian bikes like Ital Jet and stuff like that. And they, they spend all weekend racing or sort of racing. There's, you know, there's groups for people who don't want to go that fast. And then there's proper racers. And there's, you know, guys like um, Vito, Vito Guareschi, who used to run the Ducati MotoGP team. Right. And he was the Ducati MotoGP test driver. You know, him and his brother raced like what's probably the fastest Gutsy in the world, you know, which they've built because their dad is a Gutsy dealer in Parma. And so, and so there's an endurance race, which they'll be at. They're like they have a, they end the day on Saturday with a, I think it's Saturday with like a two hour endurance race, um, which is like world endurance kind of standard. But you've also got like 80, 80 year old blokes. And this year, the, the, the star 80 year old is Giacomo Agostini. Oh, wow. Who's just turned 80. And so that, so this stuff is happening here. So I'm, I'm making a film. I don't know how I'm gonna, you know, finish it exactly with because there, the, the, there are some interested companies but again it's just like you've got to find the right people to work with sure so sure. Um, so in the meantime we've been shooting you know um you know a lot a lot on my own or with my son who's here at the moment yeah and um just because there's always things going on and it, so it's, it's sort of like on any sunday in the sense that it's like on any Sunday here, you can find people racing everything from you know, two, wheel, two wheels, three wheels, you know, hill climbs, mini moto, two obviously Ferraris, Formula One, MotoGP. And, and it's all in an area like half the size of LA County. It's, it's like, wow. It's, 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 and, and everyone, you know, you go to a local bar, and I, I mean, I'm, I, no kidding, you know, most, you know, like any grandma on a bicycle that you ask will, can tell you who won the Formula One race. <laughs> you know, like that is, it's everywhere. You know, it's on all the newspapers, it's, it's on the TV all the time. Um, it's, it's just, you know, motor racing in general. And, and um, so, so it's that, it's like, it's, 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 it's the, the you know, Kind of Disneyland for motor racing kind of thing, so, and it's Italy, you know. So the food is very good. Absolutely amazing! Well, that is awesome, Mark. And it's called Speed. It's called Speed Tribe Italy. Yeah, and then I would like to do Speed Tribe. I'd like to obviously come do it in California, like you know, you know, wherever. But this, like, of all the speed, I mean, you can find obviously you can find Speed Tribes. Yeah. In in most countries yeah but um but it's a good one to to start with here um so it's in the works it's in the works definitely well we'll put a link to the youtube channel in the show notes that's absolutely terrific well thank you so much i really appreciate your time and that's really fun i mean I've, I've never i've never been asked before i mean it's sort of fun to talk about it you brought a lot of joy to a lot of people with all those movies and uh, i hope you just keep doing what you're doing it's awesome yeah, well, I hope so. But it, that, it's a very nice feeling to, it's like, you know, if you've got a favourite, you know, record or something, or something like, you, you know, 
it becomes part of your life and you do, you know it's just really nice to to have a sense that well, yeah that, that, there are certain people i know who've watched faster literally hundreds of times and it's and it's really sweet that just you know just to, to feel like you've given something that does that that good thing so well you know we'll see who knows you never know but i'll keep trying all right hey thanks a lot all right it's a pleasure Thank <laughs> you.